Welcome to Three Devs and a Maybe. Now introducing your show hosts, Michael Budd, Fraser Hart, Lewis Gaines, and Ed Mann. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm your host, Proctor, and wait, this isn't my show. Sorry, Ed. Hijacking the show, are we now? Hello, <laughs> welcome to another episode of Three Devs and a Baby. This is not Functional Geekery, unfortunately, but uh, today, as you probably guess, we've got our good friend Stephen Proctor on the show again. How are you doing, Steve? Doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Um, I think we've confused the audience now, you know, they just have <laughs> no idea. Completely spoofed them. Oh man, thanks again. I was so unfair. You know, I take the time to come on the show. Um, not, I was listening back again to last episode we did, which was like a couple of years ago now. It's quite insane. And it, yeah, I really enjoyed that one. And it'd be great, yeah, to talk more functional stuff. So, how are things going for you, though, man? You uh, having a good day? Having a pretty good day. Doing what I can just to keep sanity and try and drive stuff at the workplace. But overall, the day's been good, and the weeks the weeks have been good too. So. Are you doing this like in a meeting room then or something at your work? Yeah, so taking a late lunch for me and then uh, doing it in a meeting room. So this is usually when I can schedule with guests. Thank you very much for coming on the show, man. But yeah, well, firstly, congratulations. Like, it's crazy to think, like, the last ep- last time you came on the show, you were 21 episodes in of Functional Geekery, and now you're up to 82, which is just mind-blowing. And and follow, you know, speaking from, like, who does a podcast himself, like, the amount of work that goes into it, it is admirable how much, you know, especially because you've got to have, a, um, you know, new guests on every time. Um, that's a lot of work. So, and it must be really rewarding for you to, you know, keep going and not pod fade as we were talking about last episode. Yeah, that's one of those things that uh, makes it interesting and just that dedication and just saying, okay, I'm going to do this. If nothing else, it's more about figuring out the chance to be able to talk to all the different people and find those people that say, hey, I'd you're doing something interesting and let's share it and let's see what I can learn from you because I may not even be doing all these topics, but there's lots of good ideas around and let's find out more about them. And I can tell you're in the same boat because you still keep going with the show, even if you're the only one who manages to coordinate the timing of hosting, you've also been able to keep the show running and keep it on a pretty regular schedule as well. So. I mean, as you say, it's a labor of love, isn't it? It's that kind of, you get to talk to some amazing people. And, you know, have you ever thought about foreign out, outside of the functional landscape? Or, you know, are you very happy kind of just doing the podcast and functional programming at this time? At this point, it's probably the podcast of functional programming. And I think that gets more down into the fact of, if I were to start another podcast, it'd probably just be one of those hangouts on Google Groups or something where there's video and I'm not editing it. But I made the mistake And I'm sure you have the feeling of figuring out what commitment you're going to do early on before you really knew what you're doing. And then saying, well, if this is the amount of time that I want to get to this quality and I'm doing it by myself as the labor of love, I can really only take on one of those because I pretty much get one episode out a week if I'm hitting hard and no guests have fallen through. So, and it's just one of those things is like, I couldn't take on another one if I wanted, unless it was just one of those things, just have the call, do no editing, put it up and just share it. But that's crossed my mind in a little bit, but it's usually figuring out one of those things of who would I do it with and what would it take. But right now it's learning a lot, enjoying it. Seem to be getting some good reactions from the listeners as well. And that's always nice and refreshing to see is when the people you're putting it out to share it with are enjoying it and find it valuable and not just yourself. It's great enough, you know, that you get to listen back to it and be like, I had a cool conversation with this person. But then as you say, actually having someone else who goes, well, I've learned something from this. That that is the, the true value, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's one of those things that I'm like, I think this was a good episode 
but other people think other ones are good episodes. And it's interesting just to see what clicks with people, what learns, what everybody's learning from and the like. And just finding those things that click with different people because everybody's got the different backgrounds and different experience and different levels that they're coming from. And maybe you find the one offhand comment, people really pick up on that and say, hey, well, that thanks. That's the part that made this thing finally click from the guests just phrasing it in this way from your show like you know listening back to episodes you know as you say like people have different takes on certain things it really does make you click on certain aspects and I was just wondering you know doing this podcast now for 82 episodes you hear a lot of stories of like how people got into functional programming from you know many different backgrounds I'm just wondering like also because we spoke about your uh, background how you got into it last episode I'm just wondering kind of like is there do you find any commonalities kind of similarities in how people have got into functional programming like is there a main thing that you know people kind of you know they're all exploratory they enjoy looking at different languages or maybe the stack that they are on kind of helps aid it i don't know it seems like a 50 50 split of people who have just gotten in and have had to learn it either just because that's what they did or that's just their first job or someone else did an experiment and then left and they just got thrown into the deep end and had to pick it up and then those that essentially were just looking out and playing with a bunch of different stuff might have had an exposure here or there every now and then and then came back and finally had it clicked. I think the people who have it click after doing stuff, some of those, it seems that they've had to spend some more time doing non-functional programming before and have and had to make a couple of revisits before it clicked just because it's a different way of thinking and you don't understand what the different thinking of, different way of thinking is and why there's certain benefits to it if you haven't experienced the scars from other languages and other lessons learned and makes it say, well, oh yeah, I saw this back before, but it never really clicked. I know a number of people have said they did the structure and interpretation of computer programs book back in college. And some people are like, I wish I had that book back in college. But the people who had it back in college were like, yeah, I, I didn't understand this until I went back after 10 or 15 years and then said, oh, now I get it. Like now I have enough context to build it. If you're not set in that context day in and day out from the very beginning. I think that's interesting. Yeah, it is funny how we all learn at different paces. It takes aha moments. And I think that's the world is, you know, it's great when you get an aha moment and you finally are able to put the puzzle together in your mind and, and kind of, you know, click on things. And, and I was wondering, like, have you found, you know, through the aid of the podcast that you've had a lot of aha moments? Yeah, and I think it's exposed me to just how much broader some of these things are and just helped me start to get a better theoretical concept. I think some I've had some solid aha moments of certain things. I had Bartosz Miluski on, and he was talking about the definition of a monad. And I know you had Scott Velushin on saying he doesn't like to use that word. And just Bartosz's co- concept was the whole premise is about being able to compose functions together and being able to compose data types together that you wouldn't necessarily be able to compose. And that was one of those distinct aha moments of saying, this is a pattern of composition as opposed to one of the, whatever the mathematical definition or someone's coming from and being able to look at it that way. And then there's the aha moments that are more subtle where you start to see the patterns just across the board and they slowly come up on you, but you don't actually have that eureka moment. You just have a, I got this at some point, I don't know where it is, but I can kind of see the path that was traced through. Probably like if, in the same way that if you've jumped around through a couple different code bases or a couple different companies and things like that, whether it's the same company or not, but against different code bases, get different groups, you start to see some of these things that are more recurrent, I guess. And the same thing that like, 
now I kind of understand if you're doing object-oriented, the gang of four patterns. Or now I'm understanding what this is because I can see these things coming through. I can understand why the single responsibility principle might be important. I can start to understand immutability because I've been bitten by other things where I've had to figure out, wait, which one's happening first? And now I've got this minor race condition. It's not bad. It's not crashing the system. But there's been other cases where it's like, ah, okay, if we had just done this as a value object, which they even talk about in in the object-oriented world, that's still the same concept. And you start to see how these things all fundamentally share the same principles, but they just have different spins on them. But they're all still the underlying foundations of software. No, absolutely. And and actually, you know, I mean, it must be interesting for you and actually, you know, like delving into one particular topic, which is functional programming, which obviously isn't just a specific topic. It does, you know, encompass a lot of areas. And like your podcast of 82 episodes definitely detest, you know, attest to that, that there is so much you can learn from it. Your learning throughout the years, it must be very interesting because I think you started the podcast in 2013, I'm right in thinking. I think right at the end of 2013 was I put the first episode out. So 2014 was really, yeah, when it was really going. And I think it was at the, yeah, it was at the end of 2013 that I started to have the inkling of an idea, started getting it set up. And I think I put the first episode out right at the end of December, right around Christmas time. Just when you had some time off from guessing from work <laughs> to actually have the time to do it. Uh, that was more of the baby was a little bit older. She was six months old at that point, And I could start to have some other time now that she's sleeping through the night and not regular and She's going to bed at five and sleeping most of the time and we're done and the wife is going up to bed. I had the free time in the evening. So that kind of started and kicked off. But and then, yeah, just went through and just that's one of the things that keeps it inciting too. is that while it is niche, it's still pretty broad because you have dynamic languages in there. You have Titan. You have statically typed languages in there. You've got these other languages that like Idris and Agda and Koch that are functional, but you can actually specify even stronger static typing stuff about a length of a list that gets returned is the sum of the two lengths and have those part as the contracts. And so there's a wide variety of stuff that's even in there. And then just going back into saying JavaScript can be written functionally. Ruby can be written functionally. .NET, Java now, all these other languages can take the lessons back. And it's a way of design in the small, a little bit in the large, but it's not really that niche. These lessons start to become fundamental if you look across the board at what they are. You know, it is really true. And, and actually, you know, I think one thing that I admire you a lot about is the fact that you do, you know, cover a wide, broad, you know, kind of, you know, you say the dynamic languages, the static languages, and you're not just particular, particular on like, you know, say one functional programming language, like, oh, it's not just a, you know, a podcast on Haskell, or Scala, or F sharp, or something like that. It really does touch on anything and everything. I'm just wondering, like, how do you stay current then with all the latest, like functional programming going on, goings on? Because, it must be very hard to kind of, I mean, you know, to keep yourself kind of abreast and all what's going on. I don't know that I do, but I just have a lot of people on Twitter and I've noticed just the larger network of some of the guests. Because if I, I have a Twitter for functional geekery and I follow all the guests, so that limits kind of to that domain. And I can see when they start sharing stuff and I can see when other people start sharing stuff. And then I'll just say, you know what? It's been a while since I've had something on this language. Just going back to the breadth, just hearing your podcast now and talk about some of the stuff that's coming in with PHP and the hints of lambdas. And I'd love to get an get a episode at some point and maybe some of the listeners are actually taking this and practicing it in PHP where they're saying, yeah, I'm doing functional style programming in PHP because it gives the audience back on functional geekery the fact that these things can be applied whether or not you're doing it in your day job 
or not. And if you're just doing in your day job and you're in whatever language you are, those lessons can be learned and may still have value. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's really, you know, true. I think you're right where you can kind of distill these principles down to just good programming at the end of the day, like the pain points that we felt in the past, you know, these are some of the remedies for it. And, you know, that they can all be kind of, you know, like the fact you have immutability being king and, you know, in these contexts because of the pain that you had in the past, you know, bringing it back, you know, bringing it from the functional world into, you know, our more imperative languages and our kind of day to day work. You, you see the benefits even without having to know really kind of what the history of that was and why it came to being in the first place. Yeah. And none of these are silver bullets either. But sometimes given enough scars from the way you've done things in the past, they can feel like a salve and be that burn cream that helps you recover from those scars, recover from those burns of that time you had to do this thing. You're like, oh, dear God, I had to do this. I, and, and not only that, I remember doing this and I hated doing this and I've got to do it again at a different job because this pattern has kept reoccurring. And you can eventually start to see how some of those lessons just transition again. Scott Veloshin had the patterns in OO and patterns in F functional programming slide that he was making fun of where he's like, solid, it's a function. Dependency injection, it's a function. (laughs) Where he's being tongue-in-cheek, but you can kind of start to see how these patterns of dependency injection, well, if you're going pure and you want to limit your side effects, you have to take your side effect part out of your code and get that in there somewhere, whether it's functional programming or through dependency injection tool or some other mechanism where you're just passing in the object that's going to be your endpoint for testing so you have something that's testable. And you start distilling that stuff down and saying, again, what are the fundamentals? These things go, but I can take these lessons across most languages. If I can just figure out how to put that right spin on it, look at the other facet of the side and how it applies to procedural, to program, to object-oriented, maybe even somehow assembly if you can get down that route because i know people have talked about functional programming in c and the fact that you've just got a pointer that pointer could be to anything and people do these tricky things for performance reasons where they're passing out passing around the pointer to a function as just a pointer call dereferencing it then invoking it and this stuff has existed and we found ways to try and do it one way or another and it's interesting because I'm, I'm currently delving a little bit into small talk and then realizing that blocks, which are, you know, essentially we can kind of consider them as lambdas, already existed in that language. Because I'm, I'm looking at the small talk best practice patterns book, the one that Kent Beck wrote. And it's so interesting to like read and be like, oh, yeah, this is really interesting. Kind of, you know, this, and you can see the similarities. Yeah. And I've, I don't know if I read that one directly or one of the translations of some of that across different languages. But yeah, you look at some of those things, you look at especially the small talk example, a little bit of the Erlang example. Small talk is very object-oriented, but it's also very functional depending on how you set up your blocks. If you get your more pure blocks, you start to become and think of those as functions that are just these things that operate on data somewhere, and it doesn't matter what as long as that data has a certain shape. And you take this and you think about this, and you mentioned the aha moments at the beginning, and that was kind of one of the other aha moments, which kind of clicked was on the first episode I had Uncle Bob talk on talking about making that transition and how he's found some of these things. He's like, these are two different dimensions in the grid, in the programming space, on the the two different axes. They're orthogonal to each other. They don't actually, you can be functional and object-oriented at the same time. They're not mutually exclusive. So, and I've heard other people talk about functional core, imperative shell, and the like. But Smalltalk shows that, Erlang shows that, where you've got these actors that pass the messages back and forth through each other. They're objects in their own right. But you still have a lot of purity. You have a lot of functions that can be passed around and utilized. And these two things, you can have immutability in the small 
and immutability somewhere in between, and maybe immutability at the large. And these things kind of can interact at different levels as long as you put your clear bounds of where things are immutable, things are immutable, things are pure, things are not pure. But you can start to segregate different parts of the app for that reasonability that people talk about. That's it. And it is all about solving the problem better or, you know, to the best of your ability. And, it, you know, it's taking the best of all of what you, you can find, the tools around you and the concepts around you and the ideas. And as you say, nothing's a silver bullet. But, you know, in combination with a couple of things, you can do a, a lot of good things and learn from a lot of these different areas and join them together. And I think that's really interesting what you said that Uncle Bob said there. And yeah, it was a really, again, I'll put that in the show notes actually, because uh, that was a, a great episode. I, I still can't believe you were able to get Uncle Bob on the first episode. It was very cool. Well, thanks. And yeah, it's again, as you said, and I said, it's not the silver bullet, but these things do help. These are the things that help. These are the same things, regardless of where you're coming from. It's just, how do you adapt it for your language? How do you do, if you do Ruby and You've got this and probably some of the small talk stuff. How do you do a factory? Well, you can kind of sort of have a factory, but a factory is not really a factory because you just have a new, but you can pass around the actual class instance as an object and as a reference. So in Ruby, and I believe small, it took this from small talk, was that I can pass around this constant, which represents a class, which is a class in and of itself, pass it around, take that constant and call new on it as a variable, and all of a sudden I get a new object. Well, that's still a factory. You're still creating something. You've still got the factory method, but it's different than your gang of four factories. But if you can see how that stuff works and how that abstraction works, you can start to find some of these things and translate them into whatever language, whatever foundation you're working in at this point. And then it helps pick up, it helps you pick up any new technology as well. Cause you're like, syntax is just syntax. If I can learn the syntax, there's, there's some change in semantics. But the semantics represent certain ways of designing software. And if I've seen enough, I can start to get a feel of that mode of the system. Again, I'm not going to be perfect. I might not be highly productive at the beginning, but I'm not going to be jumping into a language and saying, this thing's completely foreign and completely new, and I don't know anything. It's, I know stuff. I just have to figure out how that stuff now applies to the language I'm working in. And it makes it makes jumping into a new language jumping into a new environment less scary because you realize you're not throwing away everything you know you're building on everything you know and that everything you know is still applicable you might just have to just kind of shimmy it a little bit to make it fit but it still is not wasted information and wasted knowledge that you gained yet you had to get that knowledge to be able to understand and get where you are there are no shortcuts there I think that's a really great way of thinking. You know, you're building on what you already know as opposed to, you know, I think people do have that feeling of, oh, everything I know now is wasted. Uh, you know, it's that whole, you know, oh, well, you know, in my imperative C world, I had to think like this. And it's like, now I can't think like that. I have to, you know, think more declaratively or something. And it's like, no, you're just building on top of that. You know, the, the ideas behind what you already know, you can just expand on and, and add more to your tool belt. Yeah, and I think that's, again, it's building up that context in your history, in your work, in your things to be able to recognize these and spot patterns because maybe you're throwing everything away but if you're a c if you're a low level c programmer who's done a bunch of these game engines you can might be able to come in and pick up react and say i know this fundamental architecture pattern we're used to redrawing stuff in games all the time as i've heard people say they we kind of like the react people kind of said we sold this kind of from the game dev like these things are things that are out there elsewhere but if you're C and you're picking up JavaScript and you're being thrown into a React team, those patterns might still be holding and you might actually have a lead advantage because 
you understand the basic premise of what a redraw state looks like, where you're kind of like input in, input out, redraw, input in, input out, redraw, input in, input out, redraw. Like, I know how to structure this. I might not know the JavaScript syntax and exact syntax of how I put this React stuff, but I know the architecture and I can fit that framework of my understanding into the framework that I'm working in on a day-to-day basis. But talking about like functional geekery a bit more, like how, how do you find the people that you want to talk to? Um, is it is it kind of you just going out on the internets and kind of, you know, on the Twitters and kind of stuff like that? Or uh, what, what kind of method do you go by? Uh, a lot of the going out on the internets, out on Twitters. I've had some people I've been following for a while. They got some people on my guest list of dreamers that I want to get on. Got some people that I just see other people recommend and interact with and follow them because they're interesting. They're doing interesting stuff, even if they may or may not be doing functional programming and mostly blindly reaching out and just saying, hey, looks like you're doing some interesting stuff here. I'd love to get you on and talk. Don't have to be an expert. In fact, sometimes beginners are just as interesting in functional programming to say, what are those things that are stopping someone? If you're if you're a beginner and you're listening, it you're not alone. If you're an advanced user who's only been doing functional programming and has been doing it for 20 or 40 years, and because you were someone like Simon Thompson who got in early and that was what they taught in school and you came through and you started helping develop Haskell and Erlang and you've been involved in these communities, sometimes that refresher of, to be fair, he's a teacher, so he gets it all the time. But if you're not in that position where you get it all the time, you start to say, oh yeah, I forgot what it's like to be the newcomer. I forgot how painful it is to go set this up. At this point, if I came in and started writing a new PHP project from scratch, having only like done a little bit of WordPress tweaks and not by a little bit, I mean like very little bit, it's you're going to forget all those pain points of what it means to get PHP set up with Laravel and find the right version and how do I wire this up because it's just become ingrained knowledge. So sometimes I try and find the beginners to help reinforce that fact of Look, no, nothing's perfect, but here's what's stopping people from joining this community or feeling intimidated. And then here's what, here's the long-term view. Here's some of that history. Here's the people who've been around for 30, 40, 50, 60 years and who have been around that have been knee-deep in this and can give us context and anywhere in between. Sometimes that's going to Twitter. Sometimes that's going to some of these functional programming conferences and seeing who's given talks on what. Sometimes it's just getting recommendations and sometimes luckily I get people coming out and saying, Hey, I'd love to hear something about this that I never even heard of. I have someone coming up that I should be doing a call with tonight. And I don't know if this is coming up, but it should come out around the same time about someone reached out and said, Hey, I'd love to hear more about ETA. I'm like, never heard of it. And they did went into they're like, it's another attempt at getting a Haskell uh, running on Java. I was like, okay, that sounds interesting. Yeah. We're talking to the person. Figuring out this, figuring out the difference between, I have no idea how to pronounce the other one. It's F-R-E-G-E, if it's phrase or frege or, but like, why do you, why do you take this? Why do you, what's your motivation for doing this? And maybe you tried the other one and you like this. Why do Scala versus why do Clojure if you're on the JVM? Why do any of these things? And you can start to get a worldview of what the different philosophies are. What's out there? Because it's not just Clojure, Erlang, Haskell, Scala, F-sharp. It's a lot broader. It's you got all these different kinds of families of lists. You got all these different kinds of people just going off and recreating these one-off things just because it could be useful. And hey, what about all these languages like Miranda that a lot of people in a younger generation never heard of? Because by that time, Haskell replaced it, and they never they stopped teaching it at school. So find some of that stuff. It's just 
a lot of this is serendipity, but I'm always trying and find the good guests and everybody's got a story and I try and figure out what makes that story interesting and what we can learn from their story. You know, I think you're right where it's, again, it's the aha moments because, you know, people will unlock it in certain ways. You know, as you say, like, you know, the, the guests that, are, you know, maybe a 40, 50 years in, you know, kind of being submerged in functional programming, you know, they'll have a very different take now on what they know as opposed to someone who's just learning, you know, these functional concepts or just learning programming in general. And it's very good to have that in between as well and having this kind of rounded approach that, you know, unlocks every, you say, everyone different moments, you'll get the, oh, yeah, oh, you made complete sense there with what you know you you mentioned you know i've heard about it for x amount of times before but this is the one way that you've been able to unlock it for me you mentioned you know kind of you have like a dream guest list could you would you you know maybe elaborate on that kind of who do you have in mind that you'd like to get on in the future so i've got a lot of let's see i've got it i actually have an evernote thing that i keep a running guest list on so let's see what i what i can find so quick rundown is you got some of the essentially older generation of who helped set, essentially found this. So I was lucky enough to have Simon Thompson and and the like in that kind of era on, but Simon Peyton Jones, essentially some of these creators from Haskell that in the early days of Haskell, and William Bird, who's done a lot of stuff, and Matthias Felison, who's done a lot of this stuff, but I still got a lot of those out there that would love to get Abelson and Sussman on, individually or as a group, talking about SICP. John Hughes on talking about some of those early days. Some of these people who can essentially start giving some of these contexts and founders and things like that. Some of these others are, you were talking small talk. At some point, I'd love to have Kent Beck on being a big small talk person. Alan Kay, talk about the OO there. But respecting that, again, back to the, these are orthogonal things. You also advocate a lot of the blocks in the book for Kent Beck. Alan Kay, where do you see OO versus functional and how do those intertwine? So I've got some, I got a bunch of people like that. Dave Thomas, Prag Dave Thomas. You got a lot of, again, some of these people like Martin Odersky, Eric Meyer, some of these other language creators that I haven't got on, Rich Hickey. Going down the list from some of those just down to other people I've seen that have jumped around and have done some other stuff. One of the others I reached out to got, it's kind of a probably a PR thing, but I'd love to get John Carmack on creator of doom creator of it one of the co-creators co-creators of doom co-creators of id software did all that stuff now on oculus but he's also he's come out with a couple posts saying i've done again i've learned functional programming here's how it changed game development i've got a son we got him learning racket and it's things like that and just see some of these people who have made the transition and he's just that example but find some of those people like i've been doing this and all of a sudden i went off my thoughts have changed a lot of the old timers Tony Horror, again, it's just, I got a long list with, and every time someone recommends someone, I try and put it on and reach out and add it to the, like, I will add it to the list and try and figure out when I get it on. And then just other people who are in there just saying, hey, you're doing something interesting on this library or on this language, you're pushing this thing forward. I had, we were talking about Scala Z, would love to get someone who's involved in Scala Cats and say, okay, let's talk about Scala Cats and maybe someone can kind of give a trade-off of why Scala Z versus why Scala's cats? What are the two differences? I don't want you to necessarily badmouth them, but if you're coming out with two things that are similar in theory, what are the philosophical differences? Where do you diverge? Where do you think is valuable versus what do they think is valuable? So I've got a long running wish list. I've got some other people that 
people are I don't even know about that come on the radar. I go see a conference talk, someone links a conference proposal and it's like, hey, that's cool. Get them on. So I take kind of wherever and whenever and try and just bring those ideas, but I have a running guest list and but it's not limited to that guest list. I try and paste those out because well it'd be cool to have John Hughes, Richard Bird, Peter Landon, and a bunch of these all together. I kind of try and space it out so I get not just a bunch of people who've been doing this for years, but get all the levels in between and try and group out the languages in between as well. So I try and pace myself with the guest list, even though I'll never catch up to it. No, I think that's really, you know, a really good idea to kind of get, as you say, given that broad kind of view and, you know, you're catering not only just for people who have been doing functional programming forever, in, in quotes, to people who have just started. Um, I'm just wondering, like, you know, kind of how is your process then for recording and kind of, you know, hosting the show? Because you mentioned like you get a, an episode out once a week at least, or you try to. I'm just wondering, like, you know, is it recording that week and then releasing that week? Or do you kind of batch record? I try and batch record as much as I can. Uh, so my process has changed a little bit. The fundamentals are still, I use Skype and Skype call recorder to do the calls. I've heard good things about Zencaster. I haven't made the transition. I know you've talked about doing Zencaster in the past and that's what we're currently on. So I'd love to find some people, more people who've talked about Zencaster and have an offline conversation at some point of people who do this and figure out I'm using Skype call recorder. It works. I've done a I've done one or two over Google Hangouts that works, but what get like is there anything that one gets over the other versus just availability of anybody to come in and hop in and then once that's done it gets pulled into audacity and i just do the manual editing and edit the episode try and take out as many ums ahs false starts and the like and that gets down to where i said could be interested in doing another one at this point the time because i try and get pretty anal retentive because I know I've driven and listened to podcasts in the car where the host or the guest was saying um every other word. And that just makes me not be able to listen to the podcast as much because I'm trying to filter out that um, especially while I'm doing something like driving. And so I try and be respectful of the people's time and try and condense it down and be respectful of the guests too and make the guests sound as good as possible and get their message across and make sure the message comes through, even if occasionally they get nervous and they are like, I've never done a podcast before. This is different, and I'm nervous. So now I'm just tense and on edge, and I'm starting more than I normally would. And so I go through that and do that, but that takes anywhere from 8 to 10 hours, so a couple of hours a night, a number of nights a week, and I just do it. But I try and batch as much up as again. That's the one thing I found was wonderful since it's just me and the guest, and it's not a panel. Panel works great if you have a standing time and you get people, but I started moving to use Calendly. And I could say, here's some time ranges that are available. I can work any time of this unless I have something else on the calendar. And I can do one episode during the day and I'll just do that as a lunchish time frame. Or maybe I go in the evening and you can pick some evening times, depending on which time works for you and where you are in time zones. And try and say, here's a set of times and allow the guest to kind of pick a time that kind of works, but works knowing that I'm also available too, instead of spending three days emailing back and forth, trying to find a coordinated time. Yeah, I was going to say, because, you know, I think that's, you know, again, it's the, it's the bits before the podcast, you know, once you've got someone on the call, like now, you know, we talk, we're talking and we're recording and it's great, but it is that prep work beforehand, you know, locating the person you want to talk to. I'm just wondering, actually, another interesting thing, kind of, 
again, like, you know, because of you you having like this massive kind of plethora of people on the on podcast, you know, to, in the functional programming world, like, what would you find as the common misconceptions that people stumble on? And also actually maybe in your day job, because I actually haven't asked as well, like, you know, kind of how you've implemented functional programming in your current day job. So quick answer to the current day job is it's all trying to implement the ideas back because I'm working in mainly Ruby and JavaScript for the past couple of years and doing the functional programming on the side and playing with it and doing some other stuff, but enjoying taking those ideas and figuring that out, which kind of circles back to the stumbling blocks is I'll take some of these ideas and immutability seems to be one of the big ones. Why don't I just reassign this variable? Why don't I just have these setters all over the place? And some of the immutability ties in with the purity. Well, why don't I just open the database connection here or what? Oh, make the API call right here and do the open the HTTP connection in this block. And it's one of those things like, well, yeah, now let's try to test that. How many things do you have to mock out because we didn't test drive this code? We just kind of wrote it, but now we're trying to test this. So I think it's one of those, I think that's one of the big stumbling blocks is part of the separation of concerns and part of the immutability and how they kind of relate together. That says, look, this becomes easy to test. If I don't make any changes in this, if this is immutable from the outside. Maybe there's a little bit of mutability on the inside, but it's small, so it doesn't make that much of a difference. But if this is immutable from the outside and I've got something that's mostly pure and I or is pure and I constrain how the impure stuff works, testing your implementation if you decided to roll your own map filter or reduce, which is possible in any language as long as you have the concept of a block or something, even if your language doesn't give it to you, you can still create that premise and essentially refactor your for loops into that and say, I can now test this easy because now I just have this other proc that I'm iterating over. And maybe that's got a side effect. Maybe that's got some sort of counter on the inside to know how many times it was called. And I test that I get that it got called every time for every element that I'm expecting. So taking those things out and isolating those, I think is one of those things just, but again, that's one of those problems of understanding separation of concerns wherever. And I think that's back to one of those things. You have to build up this context. You have to build up the scars and you have to have been bitten by it enough times to be able to realize now I see why this is valuable. If you haven't showing someone how easy it is to write the test, well, it's kind of harder to write the test until you actually separate that out. So some of that stuff might be lost. I think that's one of those things that gets lost on people. I don't know about types because with working in types, and people making the transition to dynamic versus static, I don't know that that's quite as much of a stumbling block. I think some of it when you get into really advanced types and are intent on or are taught with learning the types first versus just learning how to use the code and kind of understanding what the types are, which is what it sounds like a lot of the monad approaches are or the applicative, applicative or functors. Where people have said, like, if you're given a code base and you need to work with someone to make changes in that code base, you can get by pretty quickly and start to pick up how to actually program with an with the IO monad or the state monad or whichever monad you need. But if you were trying to do it and write it from yourself from scratch is where you're going to get stumbled. And you're like, I have no idea what this means and how and what this thing is. And it's that difference of conflating how do I use something with what something is and understanding those at the same time instead of figuring out how to be productive, get the context, and then understanding understanding what that actually means. So I think those are the big things it sounds like that I've heard and a little bit of those things that I've seen at work. 
And some of that stuff is, I think it depends on how quickly it clicks with certain people. Because just getting back into the monad style stuff, one of the things that I've kind of gotten a grasp on and have a rough picture of the monads beforehand was some languages have nullable types. So I can have an integer and it can be nullable or you have the optionals or in some of those patterns, you have the null object premise where you can still call every operation on that thing. It's either a null op or it returns another null object of that same type. So if you have a person but it's a null person and you try to get the address, well, you get a null address. It gets nasty because you're trying to have to do one-offs of every type that you could potentially have a null for. So that gets to be a pain, so it's not one of the prettiest things. But you start to realize that, oh, that's the same thing that the maybe type, the optional type is doing, and things like either types. And trying to reproduce and trying to introduce some of those concepts outside of the monadic varieties, but just as a, here's an either. You make this HTTP call. We've got this thing that is this boundary that's going to make an HTTP call or whatever, and we did this at work. And one of the people got it, and other people were like, uh, why are you doing this? I don't get it until they got bitten by something else. But I maybe maybe I just return in Ruby a struct or a, a pair or something or a hash map in JavaScript or something that says, here's my success result and here's my error result. And I only have one of the two. If I make an HTTP call and it bombs out, I get this error information. And if I get a success call, I get a, I get the result back. And I can actually have this pair or something where it's I either can return, I still return one type. I still return in either of this retype, be it the open struct in Ruby, a hash, a tuple, a pair, whatever it is for your language. And you say, if I have the first one, I know inherently that the first one is the error. If I have the second one, I know that it's there and I can only have one or two. Or even it's just setting up a new object type of that that says, I take a constructor and you can either give me the result, failure result or the success result. And maybe I have a Boolean on that that says, was this a success or not? And if success, do something with the result. If failure, maybe I need to propagate that failure elsewhere. Instead of just throwing in an exception and saying, I don't know how to deal with this exception. It starts to make you think about some of that stuff. That's really interesting. And and have you how have you found like JavaScript and Ruby is kind of like because obviously those are your day to day languages. Have you have you been have you been able to bring any other languages into the stack? Are you slowly bringing that in, or is it very much like those are the two set, and it really is kind of just the philosophy and ideologies that you're you're trying to employ on that language at this time? So there's some Java, but our team doesn't work directly on the Java for the most part. Some of them are. And when that happens, I do the same thing as the Ruby and the JavaScript, which is, what about this? Here's an option. Uh, so we just introduced a new part with Java, and it's on Java 1.8. I was like, hey, Java Java has these blocks now and map reduce filter. So maybe all these for loops that we're doing, we don't have to write. We can write them in a style similar to the way you would do in Ruby or you would do in JavaScript. Understanding that you can pass, pass the blocks around. It's like, you look, you can still pass the blocks around. Even before functional programming, and one of those things that I got with the procs and blocks when I was picking up Ruby before I started really picking up functional programming was in Ruby, you can pass a block to a file open. So you can do file open file name, pass a block of what you want to do against the file contents. And the number of times in .NET, because .NET had some, when I was working in .NET, they had lambdas at that point, And it was, wait, you're saying if I throw an exception in the middle of that, Ruby's going to know to clean up that file and close that file handler for me. And I don't have to make sure as a consumer that I close my file if I use this pattern. Wow, that's nice. And it's one of those patterns that 
you take back, again, even before logging the functional programming and really clicking what it was, was the fact that maybe every time we need to pull a database connection, we don't actually get a connection from the connection pool, process it, and make sure we return it to the connection pool. Maybe we just have something that'll pass to the connection pool, a block, the block that we want to execute, and it knows how to make sure and always returns it so we don't have these leaks. And so it's starting to take those ideas and folding them in and making things a little more functional, making things a little more pure, making things a little more isolated. What if what if this one was a static method? What if this one was in JavaScript? What if we pulled it out of this thing that we return and pulled it up into our module and not put it on the actual thing we have and try and start to explain how a closure works? So we have this function up here that's defined in the module that we can get. And yes, this one's really private now, as opposed to in JavaScript. Well, if we just put an underscore in front, it's convention that it means it's private. And there's that little bit of, so we can have public things that we just kind of deem as private and hope people will use as private versus starting to understand how the closures work and some of the cost of closures because you're still holding on to those values and references. But being able to pull those out into the ability to be able to be closed over and say, look, we have this. Oh, and also we've already got underscore in our app because we're using Backbone or we're using this or we're using that, whether it's Backbone or Lodash or whatever, but we can use this, this for loop. Here, let's rewrite this as just a map of filter or reduce and start to kind of get people used to passing these things around. If I've got a function that calls another function and that's all it does is do us it need to be wrapped for delaying the function call or can I just essentially capture the value and they can, they're just variables. So I can just put a reference to one function and another function and, and capture it. So it's trying to find those things to kind of sneak in some of those ideas of how we're doing it and say, some of this stuff isn't that scary. We're kind of halfway doing it. You see this library, it might seem like magic, but it's not really magic. It just takes the stuff that might be a little bit unfamiliar with you and builds on that to be able to give you this powerful feature. Again, Back to the Ruby example, and I don't know if PHP is getting anything like this, but the fact that if you pass this stuff in to a block when you do a file open, there's magic there about opening the file, making sure you're checking it out. That file exists. That file's not there. Throwing the exception at the right time. Also knowing that you get an exception that you close and put that file back and close out the file when you're done processing it, that once you understand how that block is working, that magic doesn't seem like magic, and you're like... I could do this for anything else like this. I've got this pattern here. I've got these three functions across all my classes. It's all the same except like maybe which field I'm pulling from. So maybe I just pass in a function, a block that knows how to take an object and get the right field of it and do it, which is essentially your map kind of thing. I'm going to transform this somehow. I think in transformations. I don't think in just do this, do this, do this, do this. It's how does this trans transformation happen? Not... What do I need to do to get that transformation to happen? No, I think that's a really powerful way of thinking. And I've I've definitely, you know, kind of over the years, kind of, you know, taken that approach too, where it's the transformations. And if you're obviously in types, you can kind of think of just transformations in types. But really, you know, in dynamic language, you can just think, you can still think in types if you really want to, but kind of just data structures and kind of structure themselves. One thing, you know, I was going to ask is, do you feel like kind of with learning a functional language, I found that, you know, that obviously I found really having a f functional language that is totally a functional language 
as kind of like a learning resource like say like learning a haskell uh, or learning you know say a closure a lisp as you know and, and really taking those concepts and they're kind of ingrained in the language themselves as being a very valuable thing as opposed to just kind of seeing them maybe in the javascripts and in the rubies where they may not look as nice and especially particularly in the phps where they definitely don't look as nice but you know I, i'm just wondering like kind of how have you felt you know that your learning has you know increased and probably been aided by the fact that you've learned erlang and you've been looking into closure and all these other languages i think the big difference there isn't necessarily the functional side of those things and even playing with a little bit of trying to get a grasp around haskell off and on not serious though but just kind of keep going back and trying to see and get a conceptual parsing of what that idea is but i think those are more philosophical differences of how you do things and what the community is doing than strictly the functional side. And I say that in the sense of Erlang and a lot of what I've seen about Haskell is if you get an error, you have to deal with your ether type. In Erlang, if you get an error, if this thing's going to fail, you essentially, when you set up your Erlang application, and this is not an application like most people think of an application, this is a small unit of your program that runs as almost a service and in Erlang, most libraries or applications. But if I've got this application and I've got a supervision hierarchy, how do I structure this so that if this fails and the Erlang's let it crash philosophy that this is going to fail, how do I think about this? How do I think about what's going to happen when it fails? How do I restart these things? How do I turn it off and on again, so to speak? It's that, it's those kinds of philosophies. Some of Clojure's philosophies of simple versus easy that Rich Hickey was giving his talk about where, no, 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 we want this to be simple. We want, it might take a minute to understand mainly because unfamiliarity and the difference between familiarity and simplicity and the like, and just knowing that what those distinctions are and driving for simplicity. No, 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 this thing is simple. It's single responsibility. It drives, I'm only doing one thing. If I'm fetching from something, I just have a f- resource I'm fetching from. It doesn't matter if it's a database connection, a file adapter, or what. It's that connection that says the part that processes this is simple. It only does the processing. It The part that does the fetching is simple. It only does the fetching. It only does the fetching of one thing. But it's also simple in the fact of the contract that it adheres to. In the fact that if we give a same API, you look at the type of the function. And I do think even in a dynamic language that sometimes thinking in the types, even if it's a transformation of a map to another map, but what do I expect this to look like? Okay, this is this has a person. Now this is a map of addresses and people. We've added and transformed to an address. Going in and thinking about what that contract of the function would be during runtime, thinking about it like that, and then knowing that, how do I handle this? What do I do? That I think it's the philosophies of those languages that they espouse than the functional nature of it themselves. I'm kind of mixed on whether or not someone should go learn Haskell or go learn Erlang or go learn Clojure if they want to learn functional programming. I say, yes, do it to get over the fact that you're picking up something different and un- and completely unrelated. But I also recommend things a lot like Focus's functional JavaScript. Brian Lonsdorf's, you'll see him as Dr. Boolean on GitHub or on YouTube, but his Professor Frisbee's Guide to Functional Programming, which uses JavaScript. Take this stuff so it doesn't seem as intimidating. Take this stuff that's familiar and say, we're going to do a thought experiment. I know you know how to do this this way. Let's presume you don't know how to do this, but we're still going to 
Again, build on that context, build out your knowledge so you're not scared you're throwing everything away. We're doing this in Ruby, we're doing this in JavaScript, we're doing this PHP, whatever you know, start folding in those ideas and building those. Yes, this is not idiomatic, but let me show you what's possible. Let me show you how this transforms these ideas. It looks goofy because it's not meant to do this, but if you can start to think about these things, you can start to do this. You see, it's not as scary as you as you think, and then it gives you confidence that says, okay, if I understand how map filter reduce work in Ruby, JavaScript, PHP, when I go approach Clojure or Erlang or Haskell or any of these other things, Scala, whatever it is, I've got that confidence built up that I'm not there, and so it gets the it it helps. The other reason I like a new language though is especially again back to the counter of why not closure why not erlang why not haskell why not whatever the one thing it does get and i like elixir elixir as an intro language sometimes scares me because it looks so much like ruby in the same way that c c sharp when it came out and javascript and all these others that have a very familiar feeling syntax is it kind of reminds me of that scene in, Di- in Jurassic Park when the dinosaurs are loose and she sits down at the terminal. And she's like, I know this. This is Unix. It's like I go into whatever language. It's like, I know this. This this is the same syntax for the most part is what I'm doing. And some of those don't cause you to take enough of a step back to realize that, no, you don't really know this. It's only yeah, it's, f- a, it's a red herring, isn't it? Yeah, it's only familiar, but and you're never going to pick it up if you don't realize that it's unfamiliar. So sometimes, yes, it's good to throw in a closure or a Haskell or an Erlang instead of something that behaves the same but is more familiar. So there's that balance there. It's trying to give them what they can do for familiarity, but when it's time to say, let's make the jump, maybe make the jump to something completely different so you know you're disconnected and you're not just trying to repeat your old patterns. You're not taking your Java patterns and applying them to C Sharp. That may or may not transition. You're not taking your... Java or Java or C sharp stuff into JavaScript. You're not taking your Ruby into Elixir, and yes, it's going to slow you down. But you're you're going to be slowed down anyway because you're bringing along that extra baggage that you don't realize that you're bringing along. I don't know if PHP has another counterpart that's got a very PHP feel to it. But if you were to have something that had a very PHP, we want a PHP inspired language. Maybe it's maybe it's Facebook stuff that they're doing that's coming out for their other PHP runtime stuff. If it's still got that very familiar feel, if you're trying to make that transition that says it looks the same, the semantics are not, but I'm still trying to bring along the old semantics because I'm bringing along the old syntax. Well, that's really interesting because uh, I mean, I can kind of see the similarity it's with Java and Scala. One of the pros of a Scala is the fact that you can pretty much write your Java without you know the type with with using type inference and stuff and you have the same idea of classes and stuff but really you're writing scala code as if it was java code and you're taking those principles with you Uh, a positive you can see from that is the fact that yes you can then go you know move your way you know slowly to functional programming and it gives you the you know the tools capable of you know kind of leveling up on that but then you obviously have the baggage of kind of this is how you do it in another language and you can kind of see similarities so you're just reusing them as opposed to saying, all right, I'm going to take a complete step back and I look at a lisp and I think, I have no idea. I have nothing to gauge this from. So it gives you that ability to have, well, it gives you, it, it forces you to look back and think, or take a step back, sorry, and think, right, okay, how do I do this? And, and then you are able to p- puzzle it together and piece it together, 
you know, with, with things that you already know, event, you know, eventually come together, but as opposed to just, oh yeah, no, it's exactly the same. It's just, you know, X or something. And you don't get to learn, you don't learn what you should learn. Or you do, and it's just delayed. And it depends on your level of discipline. So if you're one of those people who can say, I've got a roadmap, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do the Scala, very Java-esque, but I know how I'm planning on introducing and making that transition to pulling up Scala cats. And I know I want to hit Scala cats because eventually I want to learn Haskell or some other ML-based language, then maybe that's the right route. If you're the person that says, if I'm going to learn this, but I know I never really dive, dive deep on any of this stuff, maybe I'd need the full disconnect. Maybe that's what I need to essentially keep myself accountable. Uh, that's really interesting. I think we're just over the hour mark now. And again, I won't let you, because I know it's your lunch break, so I don't want to keep you for too long, man. But I say, like, again, really appreciate you coming on the show. And I was just wondering, like, one last, well, two last questions, actually. The first one, what is currently on your radar? Like, you know, language-wise, kind of, you know, things that are on your radar, whether it be for functional geekery or just in general? So my radar at work is probably... Taking a couple of these options, we essentially occasionally get a sharpen the saw where we get two days at work to go off, learn something, and then bring it back to the team and demo it. So some of that stuff may just be some more familiar stuff that I'm with, but using it in different ways so I can bring it back to the team and say, and I've done this in the past with some Erlang and Elixir. I know we're never going to adopt this, but if I can get you to kind of like crinkle your eye, eyebrow a little bit when you squint at it and say, that's different, that's weird, but oh, that part is kind of cool. Uh, so that's a little bit on the radar. Uh, I work Docker is on the radar. Uh, some of that gets down into the immutability stuff. If I've built these artifacts, if I've got this thing that I know is not changing because it's built, it's tagged, it's stable. If I use that thing, it's always going to be that thing. Nobody's changing my dependencies in there. And taking that immutability concept and bringing it at a higher level that says, here is a snapshot of our code. It's immutable. Someone didn't FTP up to the server, a different file. Someone didn't do a git pull and bundle install on the server. And now all of a sudden we've got a different dependency version of Ruby or a different JavaScript version of a dependency. But we know it's locked down and we know it's immutable. And we know that thing's never going to change because the things that went in at that point got frozen and locked. Longer term is probably outside of work. Curious about Nix and how Nix package manager and Nix OS kind of works on some of this stuff because it takes that static view of the world and solidifies it even more. And if you haven't checked out Nix, it is very crazy. Essentially, they shot and hash every package and based on every dependency upstream that they have a package. So you could essentially have, you could have PHP installed with three different versions of PHP and each one of those versions of PHP now have different dependencies, or maybe you have three different installs of Apache, and each one of those Apache pulls in three different versions of PHP. But by knowing that I've got this version of PHP, I know based off whatever libraries I need to actually compile PHP is whatever dependencies, whatever the GCC or whatever else is. There's part of a package definition that says this is dependent on that. And if that version is snapshotted and I know I'm dependent on that SHA and that all gets bundled up and essentially gets a checksum, gets a SHA kind of thing assigned to it and snapshotted. So you know that PHP 7.1 built with GCC version X, I can have a GHC 7.1 built with GCC version Y side by side 
which are two different versions of PHP, but they're still the same version of PHP. And I can see that I can use either one of those and they can live side by side on my machine because the upstream dependencies are are different. And I know, and I can essentially test the two different PHPs side by side because can we build this and does 7.1 work with the newest version of GCC and any other dependencies we need to upgrade? Well, yes, yes, it does. And I can have those two side by side and those become two different packages. So that's very, very interesting. It takes the concept of an immutable file system for your packages and stuff and just mm. like throws it down the line. <laughs> it just, it really does kind of yeah. expand on that, doesn't it? That's crazy. So that's crazy. And then uh, essentially a little bit more of the ML stuff, try and understand a little deeper into some of the types, some of the ways you start to harness union types and some types and the like, and maybe some of the monads and other patterns and un actually understand at the fundamental level of what that is and how you do that. And again, how do you deal with the outside world? How do you do with impure stuff and build that on and kind of get a little bit deeper and better understanding into that and maybe set the stage for in the future, things like Idris where you've got the dependent type systems and other dependent type systems where I know that a list is, if I'm going to map over two lists and zip them together, so I'm going to take the first one from the first list and pair it with the first one of the second list and go down the line of each of those lists, then I've got essentially guarantees type checked that I know that the two lists I get in are the same length and that the list I get out is going to be a tuple of twos of types A's and B's. So whatever's in the first list and whatever's in the second list I've got that as a pair or something, and the resultant list is still the same length as the other two lists. If like if that's my contract, I can specify that as the types, which is really crazy mm, when you first really think kind of about really it. Powerful. Yeah, and so that'll take some mind bending as well. So that's one of those things on the list to to understand, and then just again, just see what comes out, see what new people are doing with whatever it is that says, I figured out how to do this weird, crazy thing, and whether it's closure or Scala or whatever, what are those lessons we can learn? And maybe there's roughly an equivalent that can be applied with some modifications to what I'm doing today. What are those lessons? No, I think that's really, you know, really good and valuable. And I think it is great to, you know, as you say, I mean, like people are always going to be doing something new and crazy. And, you know, it's always good to just kind of keep your eye on that, you know, and using things like Twitter and blogs, you know, and, and kind of like through, you know, what people are reading on Twitter and stuff like that, you can really get a good idea. Um, I'm just wondering that finally, actually, you know, kind of what would be some advice that you would like to, you know, you'd give to someone who just is starting to look into like functional programming, you know, that the world of functional programming, obviously, other than, you know, listening to your podcast. Hmm. It's one of those trying to find the piece of advice that hits the That's 80 <laughs> the eighty or 90% of the people that are out there that say, how can I do this? First, might just be get a feel of some of this stuff, whether or not it's listening to my podcast or a podcast that you've got set up uh, that you've heard about. If Again, if you're in .NET, maybe you find the F-Sharp podcast if there's what's out there. And maybe you find the Scholar or Closure podcast if you're in the JVM, if you're in the PHP world. Maybe you listen to some of the podcasts about Facebook and what they're doing with their stronger types and wanting to bring some more sanity and type systems to to something while still taking advantage of some of the PHP runtimes. Find something that helps you put that in the scope and start to establish that context and know that people aren't going to get it. The other one, probably, depending on what you're doing, it's dynamic. If you like your types, 
you like your types, but might go with structured interpretation of computer programs. If you can't get through the book, they got some videos. You can go to the website, watch the videos. I know videos are a lot harder because you actually have to sit and watch them. You can't read them. But on the videos, at least you can go back and if you miss something, you can go back and take the courses that they were teaching about it as essentially a computer science 101 style course. Take all your knowledge. Say, this is familiar, but I know stuff. I'm not throwing this stuff out the window, but let's see how it changes. Take a look at that and give it a good shot. Don't just give up. Try and push through if you're really interested. You're, it'll be interesting to see what clicks. Maybe it takes you back to the fifth chapter, and there's only five chapters in that book. They're just long and dense. But maybe it takes you till the fifth chapter before you start to realize, here's that click. Here's what I saw. This is the thing that I've seen before, and here's a solution to it. It doesn't have to be the solution, but here's how I do this. The last, and this is a stretch, and it's not going to be for everybody, but don't be afraid to do your own for lack of a better term, I'll use podcast, but it doesn't have to be a podcast. And I say podcast for just like, even if it's a Google group hangout, try and get some people and say, Hey, I'm doing this Google groups. I want to do this conversation or can I, I'd like to send you an email. I'd like to do, uh, I think it's Jesper Lewis Anderson has a, this is not a mono tutorial where he does an email interview. And he's like, I'd love to get you to ask these questions. Try and find those resources and those peoples you can learn from, whether it's online because of the community, jump into the Slack groups, jump in whatever. Or if it's a local community, find your local user group. But find that community of people who are willing to help keep you accountable, help keep you motivated, and answer the questions and make you explain it to them. And then you could say, explain this to me. And you can know if you really got it by having to explain it to others. Put, a, put out your blog post. Put out your understandings. See if you can get feedback. See, ask for constructive feedback. Say, this is what I'm understanding. Help me to figure out where I've got it wrong and where I've got it right and what really helped you. And I think it's that kind of thing of just finding those ways, finding those hacks to learn and not just learn in isolation, but make sure you're learning and actually being able to receive feedback one way or another, whether it's applying these ideas and seeing how they work out in principle or applying these ideas and trying to say, I've put this thing up. I've done the Project Euler problems. Critique me. Tell me what's, tell me how I'm thinking in my old style and not taking advantage of the full power of whatever it is that I have because I'm going through Project Euler. I've picked my language X. I'm trying to do this functionally. Let's put this out, get comments and feedbacks, and maybe make a blog series about that. There's any number of things. Find the resources that work for you. And if you get stumbled, if you fail, try and remember back to when you were learning all of this the first time. You never understood it the first time on a on a whim. It took effort. This is something different. It's going to take effort. Don't forget that you're not an expert in everything and that anytime you need to learn something, you're going to have to start back from the beginning. But again, you're not throwing it away because you can go in there with the open eyes and say, I don't know this, but I know other stuff. And let's see if I can figure out how to equate these things to it. No, I think that's some really great advice there, man. And again, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. But yeah, I won't, I won't keep you for any longer because I know you probably, probably need to get some food in you, actually, if it's lunchtime. Uh, but as I say, thank you so much again for coming on the show. And um, is there anything else that you'd like to you know, mention? Obviously, I'd definitely say, you know, plug, you know, definitely go and check out your Functional Geekery podcast and also the FP Casts and Planet Erlang stuff that you're doing as well. Yeah, go check those out. If 
you happen to be one of those people who's checking out Erlang and listening to Three Debs in a Maybe, if you have some Erlang sites that you go fit and you and they're not in Planet Erlang, let me know. We'll get them added to the feed. It try, that tries to be a feed aggregator. FPCast, if there's another functional programming or they talk about functional programming related stuff, let me know. I try and keep that as another resource for what all is out there because I figure if we can build the community, we can start to make it better and make it available for everybody and reduce that period of entry and make it not seem, I think as Jimmy Burrell and Scott Voloshin said, not only for the maths people and not only for <laughs> not only for the people doing complex financial calculations or data analytics or whatever it is, but this is something that you can start to take these lessons through and it doesn't matter what you're doing. There are certain principles and foundations of software. Let's learn them. Let's make those accessible and not intimidating and scary. Oh, I think yeah, it's a great, you know, admirable thing you're doing there, Proctor. And I, I, I really appreciate it. And I know I'm sure a lot of our audience and also I know for sure your or your audience of Functional Geekery, they definitely do. Um, but yeah, audience, it's been another great episode. Uh, and again, we'll speak to you again next week. You've been listening to Three Devs and a Maybe. You can contact us at contact at threedevsandamaybe.com or follow us on Twitter at the number three, Devs and a Maybe.